Hey guys, it's Adam from Madison Story Slam. Before we do the intro or any of the introductions of this episode, I just wanted to take some time and do something we very rarely do on this podcast, and that is tell you how you can support what we're doing. We do a free product for you. We do free events and this podcast, and uh, we couldn't be happier to continue doing that, and it will always be free. But one way that you can help support what we do if you like it is if you go to MadisonStorySlam.com, you will see a button on the front page called Support. If you click that, you can go to the Amazon link there, the banner. When you click that, that will take you through to Amazon, and then you can uh, shop on Amazon and purchase your things, and anything you buy, we get a percentage of the total sale. It does not add cost to you. It does not add cost to Amazon. They simply want to thank us for directing traffic to them, so they pay us just a little bit of money for everything you buy. Uh, That would be a great way you could support us and uh, the work we do. You can also go to the Patreon link there and do it that way, but it's much easier to go through Amazon. So if you think about it and you want to show appreciation, this is how. Welcome to the Madison Story Slam podcast. I am your host, Adam Rosted. All right, it's been a while, but we have our first long slam in a long time. Hey, maybe you've seen the documentary Making a Murderer on Netflix. Today, our guest is Dean Strang, one of Stephen Avery's lawyers on that documentary. We talk about the case, we talk about law in general, we talk about public office and his book. Tune in and listen. It's great. Our next Story Slam is January 16th. The theme is humiliation. As always, we'll be at the Wilmar Center. Come and have a great time. Thanks to Ale Asylum for sponsoring. Anyway, here's me and Dean. Listen in. Yes, correct. Okay. Yeah. Um, so WRT, is, it, it's um, 8 o'clock buzz. Yeah. And I forget the name of the host right now. It's terrible. I'm tired, but... Um, <laughs> But yeah, Chris Chris participated in the interview. Um, I didn't know you knew him. Yeah, yeah. So, like I said, no pressure at all. Um, we'll obviously talk about Stephen because it would be remiss if we didn't. But that doesn't have to be our main focus. But I actually wanted to start uh, just by saying welcome to Madison Story Slam, the podcast. Uh, our guest today is um, Dean. Is it Strang? Strang. Okay. Strang. I had a few people ask me if you've ever, um, they, they wanted me to ask you if you've ever considered adding an E to the end of your name. And uh, people are terrible at jokes. I, I actually want to start uh, by saying that apparently, um, unbeknownst to me and much of the world, several people are uh, experts in criminal law and detective work now after having watched uh, Making a Murderer. I think I think there are hundreds of new experts. <laughs> I think, uh, dare I say, thousands. Uh, Maybe. You know, there, have you heard of the website Reddit? Yes. Uh, online web forum. There is a subreddit on that that's devoted to the documentary. And uh, the hive mind of Reddit uh, very often takes it upon themselves to uh, 
solve crimes and think that, 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 Hey, if we all band together, you know, one mind is whatever, but if we've got thousands, um, so if, if you ever log on to that and, and read, I'm sure you will be amused. But a lot of my questions today actually do come from that subreddit. Um, I'm not going to read them all cause I have, I have had over 300 questions or comments come in when I said, Hey, I'm interviewing Dean. And so, uh, I just thought I'd read a couple. So let's get right into it. Um, what would you say are the biggest pieces of information that were left out of the documentary, either something that sided with Stephen or sided with the prosecution? You'd think I would be ready to answer that question. <laughs> um, but the problem for me is the trial was eight and a half years ago. Um, so, you know, what, I, what I'm most fresh in recalling is what is included in the documentary yeah. because that that has refreshed my recollection, as <laughs> lawyers like to say. Um, a great deal of the closing arguments of both sides um, were omitted. Mm-hmm. Um, and and by the way, I, I have no criticism about any of the omissions. I you know I would hardly expect six weeks of evidence to be presented whole yeah. in a movie. It, it, you know, as I just said on the phone, even if you could make a 600-hour movie or something Who would like watch that, it? it'd be a violation of the Geneva Convention. Yeah. You know, um, it'd be torture. Yeah. Um, but the, 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 op- the opening statements largely were omitted. The closing arguments of both sides largely were omitted. They they would have synthesized for viewers the the particular viewpoints sure. that the lawyers had about the case. I suspect, without ever having asked the filmmakers, that this is precisely the reason that the opening statements and closing arguments in the main were omitted. Hmm. Um, because I I think that the filmmakers wanted to raise questions they thought are important, but dignify the viewer by assuming her intelligence or his intelligence and allowing them to come to their own answers to these questions. So um, I don't mean that to sound an evasive answer. Not at all. It's, um, it's, it is the most significant omission I can think of are the arguments Um the really significant evidence pointing to guilt from the prosecution is included mm-hmm. in the documentary, and the really significant evidence um, or questions about evidence that might point to innocence also are included. Less significant prosecution evidence and argument, less significant defense evidence and argument, I think necessarily were omitted. Yeah. Well, I think you know uh, it's no secret now. I think a lot of people have figured out that there was there was more DNA involved with the car than the the blood inside the car. There was some form of DNA under the hood. I th- I think it's interesting that that was left out of the documentary because that I think that's definitely something that if if the viewers had known there were two links to that car for Stephen that they would at least be more like, okay, well, maybe. I Like, it's hard to fake two things, maybe. Well, but, it, and I understand that. 
Uh, here's the here's the problem with that line of thinking. Um, the the other DNA that was identified as probably Stevens, and that was either on the hood or just under the hood, maybe on the latch. Mm-hmm. I forget now, but it, but it had to do with the hood of the car. The other DNA that was identified as probably Stevens, there was no blood found with that DNA. Sure. So a DNA transfer without blood is really easy. Mm -hmm. You know, you could take my toothbrush and go out and scrub it, yeah. Rub it on a car trunk and you'd you'd get my DNA. Mm -hmm. You could take my razor and do the same thing. Sure. You could take my uh, hand towel in my bathroom. Um, and, and of course the police had exclusive access for about a week to the entire property, including Stephen Avery's trailer. Mm-hmm. So I'm just guessing about why that was omitted, but it's actually the blood in the car that would have been harder to plant. Yeah. Um, you know, the fact that my DNA is found on something does not mean I touched it. It means that something with my DNA, which might be my body mm-hmm. or my saliva or my blood or, you know, some whatever, something with my DNA transferred DNA to a, another surface. Yeah. That need not have been my body or, you know, my bodily fluid. Um the transfer of DNA can happen in any number of ways. Sure. So that I'm just guessing. I, I never asked the filmmakers, and yeah. probably won't ask. Well, them and I think that's the thing editorial that decisions. people have to keep in mind is that you are not a part of making this film. A lot of the questions that have come in have been questions that I'm that I already know you wouldn't be able to answer because you can't answer why they didn't include that or why this. Um, and, and then also there's a lot of technical questions about, I mean, I'm sure you're more knowledgeable than I am about, um, testing of blood and testing of DNA, but you did not go to school for that sort of thing. Like you're not a, necessarily an expert in that. So there's a lot of those questions that have come in that, that are just like, okay, I get it. People you're, you're interested in this, but like Dean's a lawyer representing Steven. He, he's not an expert in bullet trajectory or testing for DNA or anything like that. Right. You pick up some experiential knowledge, um, trying criminal cases in that. But, of course, I'm not an expert in mm-hmm. ballistics and trace evidence in DNA or, you know, any other um, scientific discipline. Uh, what I've learned, I've learned experientially and by reason of needing to learn something for a given case. So in a given case, I may, you know, I may go 10 feet deep, but it's an inch or two wide, Mm -hmm. so to speak. Whereas somebody with real expertise in an area, you would expect to be 10 feet deep and, you know, a hundred feet wide. Sure. Um, speaking of the closing arguments, you said something, or at least it's shown in the documentary, and I'm sure I, if I'm remembering correctly, it's from closing arguments. You said something along the lines of police wouldn't plant, police don't plant evidence to convict an innocent man. They plant evidence to convict a guilty man. Do you regret saying that at all? Because when I heard it, it made me cringe because it, because if I was sitting on that jury, I would think this guy thinks his client is guilty. No, I, I don't. 
I don't regret saying it. I would regret it if I had worded it as you just did. <laughs> I, like I said, I wasn't as sure I, on the As I recall, there. I think the wording was, you know, except in the rarest case, police don't try to frame someone they believe to be innocent. Sure. If they're framing someone or augmenting a case corruptly, they're doing it ordinarily because they believe the person to be guilty. Okay. So I, the point was, you know, you don't you don't really even need to ascribe evil motives mm-hmm. um, in most situations where you would have planted evidence. What what you're seeing instead is, I think, a fear of a police officer that a person he believes to be guilty, he feels it in his tummy, mm-hmm. or he's got a. You know, and a, a police officer's hunch or sure. intuition, or yeah. intuition, or or you know, or or evidence of guilt. He believes the person to be guilty. He fears that somehow they will defeat the criminal justice process and walk free. And so that's the real temptation. You know, for all but the most sinister person who, yeah. who who would willingly set out to frame someone he knows to be innocent. The much greater risk in our world, in the real world in which you and I live, is the police officer who's tempted to bend the rules, break the rules, by augmenting dishonestly a case against a man he believes to be guilty. Sure. So... Uh, when you're taking this approach of evidence was planted, is is did you guys flat out say, well, I don't know, if I'm on that jury and just the just the argument is the that this was a setup, I'm going to think, okay, the implication here is that the police murdered this woman and put her on Stephen Avery's property. But I didn't necessarily take that that was your argument. That wasn't our argument. Do you think that that implicitly a, a pe- people, when they hear the argument that this is a setup, that that's implicitly what they think? that Well, if not Stephen Avery and the police have planted evidence, then they're also saying that they the police murdered Teresa Halbach. Well, I think the, I think the lead prosecutor did a good job at using a reduction to the absurd, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, rhetorical response to our argument. I mean, he, he, he tried to make the argument to the jury that, you know, if they're saying the police planted the evidence, or if you, if you, the jury find that the police planted evidence, then you necessarily must find that the police killed Teresa Halbach. Mm -hmm. Not at all. Um, like most reductions to the absurd, it's it's misleading and mistaken. Yeah. Um, y- you know, once the police are confronted with the kidnapping and and eventually the murder of Teresa Halbach, the task for them becomes trying to discern who did it. Sure. In discerning who did it. I think the police, the Manitowoc County Sheriff's Department, at least, brought some biases to that. Mm -hmm. They feared that they would bring bias. They are the ones who announced we have a conflict. We're handing the investigation off 
to the adjoining counties, Mm -hmm. the sheriff's department. Now, that turned out not to be true. They never did remove themselves from the actual investigation. But it's then the bias and the tunnel vision that the police brought to this that would have led to the corruption of the process, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the dishonest augmentation of the case, either by planting evidence or by sort of bending testimony, uh, exaggerating, whatever. There's a number of ways you can, sure. you can augment in a way that's not intellectually honest or, or otherwise honest. Um, and the impulse to do that doesn't necessarily flow from you know, we murdered Teresa Halbach. It flows from the imperative to try to solve a crime that's horrified the community. Yeah. You know, I'm sure there's a lot of pressure on, on a police agency to get a crime like that solved. Um, Of course, rightly so. Yeah. And so I don't know. That's it's, I don't think that people are ever going to be satisfied with this. Uh, so anyway, uh, um, Colburn, what's his first name? Andrew. Andrew Colburn. The question I have heard a lot is uh, if you have any theories or whether it was ever discussed further why he would call in uh, the the driver or the license plate of Teresa's car. It was never the 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 viewer, you know of the documentary sees most of what there is Mm -hmm. on that subject. He does call it in two days before uh, Pam Sturm finds the car in the Avery salvage yard. So he's calling in the license plate two days before that. Um, And I think, as I recall his explanation, it was, well, another sheriff's department, the Calumet County Sheriff's Department, gave me her license plate number but for some reason, I'm checking it anyways with hmm. my dispatcher. Interesting to see um, if that's really her license plate number. Now I'm paraphrasing. Yeah, that, but that's my recollection. Um, and that you know he wasn't moving off of that explanation. Um, we had only the indisputable fact that he had made this recorded call to dispatch two days before the car was um, found by Ms. Sturm. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, his explanation was what it was, and the tape recording was what it was. It was for the jury to decide ultimately what that meant. Yeah. I'm not going to ask any more questions from Reddit because it's a lot of repeating questions. Uh, Mm -hmm. Do you, you can think, ask me any questions you want. Yeah. Do you think? Do you think this documentary um, is narrow? Is it more about the narrow perspective of the injustice uh, that was done, or supposedly done, what appears to have been done to Stephen Avery, or is it, or is it at a larger scale that hey, our justice system is broken, uh, and here is just one example? I think every viewer probably takes something different from it like any you know movie or auditory experience i mean your shakespeare is not my shakespeare you know your brahms is not my brahms yeah. we 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 all you know participate 
in sensory experiences and and art differently. Um, you've identified two two ends of a spectrum. I know I've had reaction from many many people who are entranced by the concrete small story yeah. of Stephen Avery or Brendan Dassey or the two of them, and those are really compelling stories, regardless Very of much so, yeah. what you know what you make of them. They're they're human tragedies and they're they're just rich stories as you know being a storyteller um i've had a lot of other people who abstract from these stories um much bigger questions about our system of administering or trying to administer criminal justice generally and and people have abstracted those stories to bigger questions by varying degree. Um, for myself, I, um, the longer I practice law, and it's over 30 years now, the more I linger over the bigger questions, the systemic questions, yeah. the more I think about where are the weaknesses and the fault lines in our system? When do they appear? Why do they recur? What can I do as someone who's devoted his working life to, you know, working within the system? What do I do to try to make it better? Um, How do I balance my duty to my client with a broader duty? Um, to the public and my country to try to make our institutions work as well as they possibly can. Hmm. So I, I find myself at that end of the spectrum uh, much more often. And, and I also recognize that these are really compelling, small, vivid human stories. Yeah. You, you know, I think a lot of people, my wife was very angry at the end of uh, the documentary, like had to talk her down angry. And I get it. A lot of people are that way. Um, it's scary it, because what what appears to have happened, if we take it at face value, uh, the documentary, is that two times in this guy's life, the same group of people decided he was guilty of something and just made it so. So it it... it seems like, well, if a cop decides that I'm guilty, there's nothing I can do uh, to stay out of jail. I mean, that's how it looks. And I think that scares a lot of people. And, and people Well, it are- should scare a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Um, it should. But we also, we also have to be honest and humble in acknowledging that outcomes in our criminal justice system often are accidental the way outcomes in life are accidental and and in you know in all sorts of human activities um there's no question in my mind that guilty people occasionally walk free after a trial there's no question in my mind that innocent people at least occasionally are found guilty and imprisoned um and you know this this is a very human endeavor. There are good motives and bad. There are noble actions and ignoble actions. Um, 
there are smart people and dumb people. <laughs> yes, know, there among, are <laughs> among the you know just among the professionals yeah. in the in the criminal justice system, and you know we do have to be honest and I think humble about recognizing that mistakes are inevitable. Mm-hmm. Our job is to try to identify the best internal controls we can have in the system, build them up, make sure they're applied and honored. Um, And then I think also, maybe most importantly, uh, two things. One, decide what's our default position? On which side do we err when we're left with meaningful uncertainty? Hmm. Now, you know, the founders and English common law before that have an answer. And, and anybody who's taken civics knows what that answer is supposed to be, which is if there's not proof beyond a reasonable doubt, we err on the, on the side of liberty. Sure. Rather than depriving someone of their liberty or their life in, you know, in states or jurisdictions with the death penalty. But I don't know that we really honor that value or that, that principle it's possible to honor that like my my biggest question after this documentary is 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 a fair trial possible because the just the way hu- humans are faulty machines that uh are often going haywire and and so you you can try and rationalize and intellectualize okay innocent until proven guilty but just the mere fact that this man has been brought to trial by by a state the implication is guilty and so like i mean doesn't every jury jury start with the idea that this is a guilty man now prove to me that he's not when it should be the other way around i think so so can fair trials happen yes they can but it it's accidental when they do and to some extent it's accidental when they don't it's an accident of what's the composition of this jury Hmm. How convincing is the judge in his instructions or her instructions? How good are the lawyers? How invested are they in it? How well do they click, so to speak, with the jurors? How does the jury perceive the defendant sitting mm. there? Yeah, because you know we have a we have a great faith. Um, we don't just see it in courtrooms; we see it in our political process all the time. We have a great faith that we can look across a room or even look through a television set and stare into somebody's eyes and draw reliable conclusions about their soul or their character. <laughs> sure. Uh, we have great faith in that. Yeah. Um, and, and it's true that humans are excellent decoders of micro-expressions and subconscious tells, you know, in our, yeah. in our behavior. It's true, okay, to an extent. Absolutely. But we have... We have an overweening faith in our ability to do that. So in any criminal case, people are drawing a conclusion from watching the poor bastard sitting over there, whether they think he's guilty or innocent, just by looking at him. Yeah. And, you know, that's where we need some honesty and humility about the potential failings of the system and the human beings in it. Mm -hmm. And, you know... So the, I mean, the second point I was going to make is I, I think if I could change anything with whatever time I have remaining wandering around <laughs> this earth <laughs> and doing the work I do, I, I would 
I would try to demote uh, finality for finality's sake as from its its position of near primacy as a value in our criminal justice system, and I would try to promote humility mm-hmm. as a value. And what I mean by that is I, I would try to... I want to try to push us um, as a, you know, as a profession and as a society toward being willing to recognize mistakes and then fix them in our criminal justice system. Yeah. Not say, well, the conviction is final, the time for correction has passed, sorry. Hmm. Um, If we have an innocent person sitting in prison, the finality of that conviction should have very little value indeed in a humane society. Yeah. And we should try to fix the mistake, however tardily, if we possibly can. We, we also, I think, you know, need to give people in prison, the, let them participate in human progress. I mean, this is an argument... I made it sentencing, and it didn't. It didn't persuade Judge Willis, but I believe it. When, you know, when you impose a sentence of life without parole, it's it's but a slow death sentence. Yeah. You are you are removing that person from the possibility of re- redemption here while he's living. You're removing him from the possibility of rehabilitation. You're removing him from the possibility of life you're simply imposing a slow death sentence uh that will um be final if you will with a biological accident of when he happens to die yeah and really in in if you set aside sport sporting events in almost no other area of human endeavor that i can think of do we do this for example you know once once you sentence Steve Avery to life without parole, the legal system functionally is done with him. Yeah. He's beyond the interest of the legal system once the appeals, you know, the direct appeal is exhausted. He's beyond the interest of the legal system. He will not get the benefit of advances in our thinking or advances in the legal process or improved knowledge about whether he is guilty or not. We don't do that in any other aspect of life and indeed for example if you know well Stephen Avery was was sentenced to life without parole in June 2007 if this year nine nine years later if he were to develop cancer let's say god forbid yeah and need medical treatment at the department of corrections doctors wouldn't say well I'm going to I'm going to only treat you with the medical techniques and knowledge available in June 2007. Yeah. Because yeah. that's when you were committed to the custody of the Department of Corrections. No. A doctor, any healthcare professional would bring to bear the techniques, the knowledge that they have today in 2016 in trying to treat cancer. For example, yeah. Um, so the, the legal system gets frozen in time, and, and in doing that, freezes people in time, makes them static when all of life really is dynamic. And if if I 
if I can change anything, it's going to be to nudge my profession and our courts and our system of justice and the public toward recognizing that the system itself and judgments ought to remain dynamic and mistakes when when we come to learn we've made them in hindsight ought to be rectified to the extent we can rectify them do, do you think the the roadblock there is ego i think ego is part of the roadblock and it's exacerbated by the blame placing that becomes the focus of appellate processes and in any sort of post-conviction process to some extent the entire trial process in our system we're very worried about having someone to blame Mm -hmm. if a mistake was made I don't say accountability is unimportant. I don't say that at all. I do say that within the criminal justice system, let's worry first about fixing the mistake before we worry about placing blame for it. Yeah. Again, this is a matter of humility. People are going to make mistakes. We do it all the time. Every day. I spend most of my life making mistakes. Most of them are small. Some of them aren't. Yeah. And... You know, that's that's just the human condition. So let's worry first about correcting the mistakes. And then later we can decide whether blame should be placed for that mistake and how. Hmm. But the the focus on placing blame, of course, makes everybody defensive. Yeah. The police are defensive. The judge is defensive. The prosecutors are defensive. The defense lawyers are, are defensive. Nobody wants to be blamed. And so the, the poor devil who's the victim of the mistake or paying the cost of the mistake goes without a remedy for the mistake. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like it's, uh, I mean, you're right. Uh, that's got to change. Like if, if, if we want this to be a fair process, that definitely does have to change. Uh, before we go, I know you have limited time. I wanted two more things. You wrote a book, uh, and I wanted to give you a chance to plug that. It's Worse Than the Devil, Anarchists, Clarence Darrow, and the and Justice in a Time of Terror. What is that book about? That book was a was was a long time um effort of love, um both of history, legal history in my case, um you know, and of the people who make up this flawed criminal justice system. <laughs> In which I work, um, it also um, was salved to some extent for me in recognizing that the mistakes I encounter in the in the twenty first century now or began to encounter in the last fifteen years of the twentieth century those mistakes are old we 've been making them for a long time yeah um, and, you know, on the one hand, maybe it's time to start doing better and correcting some of those mistakes. On the other hand, you have to learn to live with some of these failings if you're going to get up and try again tomorrow. So my academic interest is how do outsiders and newcomers fare in our criminal justice system during, especially during times when there's a high fear of terror or a high level of patriotism, a high level of nativism, 
for me, the era, the the time right around World War One, hmm. is a really good laboratory or setting in which to ask those questions and, and look at those problems um, because fear of terror was very high. Uh, anarchists were the you know the great violent radicals of the day and resorted to bombings and other acts of violence. Violence was practiced by the police and by vigilante citizen groups against them. Uh, we were at war, um, extraordinarily repressive, um, legislation was tolerated in large part because we were spooling up for a massive, although ultimately not very long, war effort during mm-hmm. World War One. The First Amendment um, and the freedom of speech was not understood then as it later came to be understood in the later 1920s and into the 1930s. So that period of time is a really is is it's just a very good framework at which through which or you know in which to look at some of these issues and that's what the book does and it's also was very local to me because it's milwaukee based the, right yeah it's not only milwaukee based but the but the the melee that led to that trial of 11 Italian immigrants occurred on the corner of my block. Oh, really? Where I lived for 16 years. Interesting. And the case involved on appeal, Clarence Darrow, um, with whom I've been fascinated since I was in law school. So that first book brought brought together a lot of things that interest me. The second book on which I'm now working, and I expect that the second one will be out in 2018, um, addresses many of the same issues and during the same time frame. Sure. So the book again is, let's see, Worse Than the Devil, Anarchist, Clarence Darrow, and a Justice in a Time of Terror. You can get it on Amazon or pretty much anywhere, I'd assume. You can, and and the University of Wisconsin Press would love it if you bought it online from them. And I would love it if you would go to madisonstoryslam.com, click on our Amazon banner on our support page, and then buy it through there, and I get a little bit of a cut to help pay for this podcast. I'd uh, love it no matter where and how you buy it. <laughs> um, the last couple of things I had for you is uh, how has your... Have you thought – so let's see. Uh, trial ended. Your last bit of being in court with Stephen Avery was when? June 2007, other than uh, testifying at the post-conviction hearing so, when he was represented by appellate counsel. So eight, nine years. Eight years? Coming up on nine. Uh, coming up on nine. In the last nine years, how often have you thought of this case compared to since December 18th? Well, it's it's been ever present sure. um, in my little world since December eighteen, two thousand fifteen. But I also think of this case a lot. I've been in touch with Stephen Avery throughout those eight and a half years since mm-hmm. he was sentenced. Jerry Buting has the same. Jerry Buting and I are regularly in touch, and we're you know we're colleagues and and friends. Had you um, known each other before? Yes. Okay. Oh yes, absolutely knew each other pretty well. Um, before this, never practiced together, but mm-hmm. but knew each other well. Um, and we've seen Stephen um, over the years, corresponded with him, and actually, you know, gone to prison to see him. Um, we continue to be in touch with the family, and so we, you know, we we've played an ongoing, mostly informal role for him 
ever since. And I and I think of the case a lot. I think of I think of the cases that I've lost more frequently than I think of the ones I've won. Sure. That seems unfortunate yeah. <laughs> personally, but it, I think that's kind of across the board for people. Like people think more of the game, the games they lost than the ones they won. Yeah. You know, we, we, we focus on our failures, not on our victories, um, or successes, I think. Um, and I, and I also, you know, I think about the cases where there's been a very, very heavy sentence. Sure. Uh, Understandably. I mean, that just, I think makes common sense. Um, so, you know, it's one I carry. Yeah. Have you, uh, have you, well, have you kept count of how many people have come up to you and goes, okay, so I know what happened. <laughs> like, and that's got to have happened quite a bit. A lot. Yeah. I haven't kept count. Have you, have you had to lot. deal with a lot of people just being like, are you are, you look so familiar since you know, it came it's, out? It's interesting. Yes. I, there has been a lot of that um, since it came out. And mostly, not exclusively, but mostly, it's people in their twenties, really, or maybe and they're very just, early but they, 30s. they can't place you. No, actually, usually they can. They do. Oh, okay. They place me. Okay. Yeah. Um, now we're just talking about the last couple of weeks. Sure, sure. That'll fade away, but more often than not, it's 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 someone in their twenties. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I, I don't know if that's because this is a generation that just streams things to tablets and laptops and is, is more comfortable with streaming Probably. video um, or what. But it, it's it's been interesting and it's been encouraging to me um, because I think people in their in their 20s, millennials in general, sometimes getting, get written off as apathetic. And that's not what I've seen. Mm-hmm. That's not what I've seen. We are apathetic a lot of times, but, but I don't think that's the overwhelming uh, approach most of us have to life. No, I think, you, I think you're idealists, most of you, but I think you are more skeptical and more sophisticated than... Maybe, well, I'm going to agree to that last part. Sophisticated. You know, then maybe 20-year-olds were in 1960 or maybe 20-year-olds were in 1980. Um, and I think you, ex- you know, as a generation, they tend to, this generation tends to act on and express its ideals mm-hmm. um, in different ways, in part because technology has changed the way we behave socially so dramatically in the last couple of decades. Yeah. The overwhelming thing I've seen online, uh, not related to the case, but concerning you, is people want you to run for office. People my age are in love with you. And and that's what I keep hearing. Ask him if he'll run for office. Are there any plans to run for office? I will not run for any office <laughs> ever. <laughs> that's fair. Uh, and, and America can be thankful. <laughs> That I'm not going to enter electoral politics. Who would politics. want the pressure of that? That's life has enough pressure as it is. So, the distortions and the compromises, I I, I fear, are just um, well, they're not they're not compromises and distortions. I'm willing to sure. make or to live with. Yeah. So the last question I ask every guest is, uh, you, and you can answer it however you want it. Take the question however you want it. Uh, who is the most interesting contact in your phone? And I have had answers that have ranged from mom to Quincy Jones. 
I don't know if I have any contacts in my phone. Do I? <laughs> oh, Rolodex, then. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know I have contacts in my, you know, in my email system. Um, I have so many really. I'm I'm so lucky to have so many interesting people I know, um, and. Some of the very most interesting people I know are dead, <laughs> um, and they're still really interesting. Yeah. Um, I don't know that I, I don't know that I can answer that question um, because to, to name one would be to exclude twenty five others. Yeah. Um, I get that a lot. I, I I get that a lot. So a lot of times, people who say that just default to mom or dad or something. But well. Um, Mom and dad were were dead long before I had a smartphone or or anybody had a smartphone or um or an email system with contacts sure um, you know I think my sister's pretty wonderful and interesting, as is her husband um, My wife is a constant challenge and <laughs> and someone who's as a freshly married person, interesting. As a freshly married person, I, I get the challenge part. So, well, that's a good, good uh, diplomatic answer. Going with family. <laughs> okay, well, Dean, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Uh, it was great to hear from you. If you ever want to come back on and tell us more about being a lawyer, because I, I think one of the most interesting things for people with the documentary was, you know, we we know what we know about law and trials from law and order. And it was so interesting to really get a really good in-depth look at what really goes on during a trial. And so like, it was a compelling story, but also for me personally, it was just really interesting to like feel like I was a fly on the wall watching it happen and it's not scripted. So it was real. No, you know, Jack McCoy to use Law and Order yeah. is a fictional character. He doesn't exist. Yeah. <laughs> um, the people you see in in this documentary, you know, or any other documentary about um, a criminal case, they do exist. Yeah, absolutely. Well, cool. So, uh, listeners, just so you know, our next uh, Story Slam event is Saturday, January sixteenth, at the Wilmar Center. Our theme is humiliation. So come. You know, tell us all your embarrassment, and it'll probably still leave you feeling embarrassed, but at least we'll all still have a good laugh about it, and uh, it'll be fun. Once again, Dean, thanks so much for joining us. Adam, thank you for having me, and thank you for advancing the really fundamental human need for storytelling. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. <laughs>